This podcast is made possible by Sage People and U.S. Bank. This is Kim Drapkin. I'm the Chief Financial Officer of Jout Therapeutic, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 432. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Steve Loudon, CFO of Roku. Full disclosure, I love my Roku player. I bought it a few years ago and uh, quickly realized uh, the little piece of hardware was a gateway to Netflix to Amazon Video, and, uh, and of course, uh, the Roku channel. And so one year after an IPO that raised $219 million in funding at a valuation of $1.3 billion, Steve Loudon joins us and shares his CFO journey into the land of streaming content. We begin after these words from our sponsor. Hello, Jack here. I have a message for you from the folks at Sage People. Decisions about your people should be driven by data. But is your HR department still using spreadsheets to keep track of your people? It's time to move to cloud. Understand what makes your employees tick. Know your best performers or determine absence trends all with a cloud HR and people system. Sage People empowers organizations to respond quickly and easily to changing priorities in today's shifting world of work. It means you can make sure your workforce is able to adapt while staying connected and engaged wherever they are. Discover how to get instant insights at your fingertips. Visit us today at sageintech.com forward slash sage dash people. disgruntled fan of my cable provider at the moment. So uh, we've been looking forward uh, to finding out more about Roku. Uh, but as always, we want to learn a little bit about you and how you became a finance leader. So what would you share with us? What are some of those experiences you believe helped prepare you for a CFO role? Yeah, thanks. So I've had a range of financial and strategy roles throughout my career. 
starting off as an investment banking analyst. Then I worked in strategy and financials at Disney, went to business school, was a management consultant. And then in terms of the finance leadership positions, um, I you know, really learned a lot. I was a divisional CFO um, at a company for a while. Um, before Roku, I was at Expedia. I ran corporate finance. And then most recently there was the treasurer. Um, and that, that combination of divisional CFO roles, the treasury role, um, and then the prior range of finance and strategy roles really helped me broaden out my tool set to make the leap to be a CFO. So I think we'd describe your path to the CFO office as the, uh, the business development path versus the, uh, the public accounting route. And um, as is typical with business development, there, there always seems to be a few surprises or milestones that are fairly unique. And I'll mention uh, that you have a Harvard MBA and you had a, a stint at McKinsey & Company as a consultant, which I think also sets you apart. But would you view the, the world somewhat differently in terms of um, the two paths I've mentioned, or how do you see the world? Well, I think you're spot on. I mean, first in the classification of CFOs, it's certainly a broad segmentation, but, um, yeah, a lot of CFOs would come up through the public accounting rank and, and control it and then up to CFO. And then I do think the other side of that is you do have folks um, – and I put myself in this bucket that are, are more the business-oriented or strategic-oriented CFO. And certainly I've, got, uh, I've had a range of, of finance and strategy roles. Um, I've also had a, a, a bunch of different roles in various industries. So like you said, it's everything from investment banking to retail banking to entertainment at Disney, um, Internet and tech at Expedia, and now you know, the kind of combination of uh, media and technology and the evolution into uh, over-the-top streaming. So um, it's been a pretty uh, wide-ranging path to get where I am, and certainly, you know, that has come up a lot as, as I've interviewed for different roles over time. And what I've kind of told people that's beneath that is the fact that what I really define myself as is someone who likes to solve complex, ambiguous business problems. And so that can take a range of industries or functional uh, positions, but really it's a combination of finance and strategy. And, um, you know, back in my undergrad, I was an applied math and econ major. And so you know, there's a lot of that mathematical problem solving and, and a love of data to help um, solve problems to the extent you can put facts around somewhat fluid or ambiguous situations. So in my mind, this is an exciting space today. Everything that's happening with streaming content, uh, it's a dynamic space. And the people who are being drawn to this space know uh, sort of that the, the world is changing very quickly here. I, I'm wondering, like, if you look back, say, five years ago, if someone had told you he'll be a CFO of a company in this space, in this sort of dynamic whirlwind, the streaming boom, is providing, would you, would you have been surprised? Yeah, um, yeah, I would have been surprised at any particular CFO gig that uh, somebody would ask me about five years ago. But in terms of the general position and, and my approach to my career ladder, um, being a, a business-oriented CFO at a, a company that's uh, got a consumer angle to it, that's in a growing and evolving space that has 
uh, key competitive differentiations. So that was really kind of the criteria I was looking for and the type of position I was looking for. So in a way, that, that broad role, set of roles that I had were trying to fill out my toolkit so that um, you know, I could set myself up for, for a CFO down the road. Um, you know, the joke, I think, with CFO positions is the best way to get a CFO position is to have already been a CFO. And so when you're looking at how do you become a CFO, um, the easiest way to do it is to grow within a company and get promoted up to the CFO chair. I didn't do that, obviously, um, but I had been a divisional CFO, and I had been a treasurer of a public company with a, with a fair amount of capital market experience. So I was able to, um, you know, work with the folks at Road 2 and most specifically our founder and CEO, Anthony Wood, to fill out the story that I had the range of experiences and because I was, uh, you know, kind of a, a problem solver at its core, that I could transfer those skills to a, a fast-evolving company like Roku. Now, your resume is chock full of finance leadership experience. But, you know, at the same time, would it be fair to say that you were not the obvious uh, choice of CFO for Roku? Uh, I'm not sure how so. What, what makes me atypical for that role? Okay, so here's what I'm thinking. I, I know there was an IPO in the not-too-distant past uh, for Roku. Um, and my thinking was, you, you don't fit really the profile of the serial Silicon Valley CFO that goes from one IPO and jumps to another company to take it public or, and on and on and on. Yeah, I th- I, yeah, okay, that, that's helpful clarification. Yeah, look, I think that's true. Um, um, that gets back to the joke of, how you become a CFO is to already have been a CFO, and certainly I think a lot of companies go that route. Um, and I'm sure Roku, Roku uh, looks for folks that fit that traditional bill. Um, but I think um, why I got the job, and I think what's what's made me successful here, and, and what's made Roku successful in general, and it starts with Anthony, is uh, yeah, he has a strong vision for the space, and he has a strong product and technical vision. Um, and the company is growing quickly and evolving. And he's not—he's not afraid to do things a bit differently if it—if it makes sense to him. And he can kind of do the do the problem solving and the analytics behind that. And so, yeah, certainly I had not taken a company public, but you know, I started out as an investment banking analyst. Um, yeah, I've worked in a public company very closely um, with at Expedia as, as the VP of corporate finance in the process. I had done capital markets transactions um, on the debt side with Expedia, so I knew kind of all the bankers around town in the TMP space. Um, so, again, I had a lot of the components. And, and I think the biggest thing for a company like Roku in a fast-evolving space is yeah, you have to make this decision-making. So having someone that's had the experience um, is very helpful, but really you need a, a strategic-minded, uh, business-oriented CFO who can keep up with, with the CEO and the business itself and help to solve problems and, and help the company get set up to scale and become a public company. And so I had a lot of the ingredients of that, and, with, and I, I'm assuming because I got the job, confidence that I could, you know, work at a fast pace to get things sorted and, and keep up with the business. And I think that's a critical point to success. One of the, one of the comments I, I committed to memory when I heard it, which your, your CEO 
commented recently, what surprised him post-IPO about Roku was how much the operations of the company were similar to being a private company. And I, I knew I had to ask you this question, which was, do you share that sentiment as the CFO of a Roku? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that comment, but sounds like something he might say. Um, yeah, I think um, part of what I would say for that is um, I did come from largely a public company background, and so when I came in three and a half years ago, uh, there was a small finance team in place, uh, but there was a lot of work to, you know, restart the finance process, or the, the finance org. They, they had a gap between the fire CFO, um, and so we really worked um, starting three plus years ago on streamlining the, the budgeting, forecasting, closed process, enhancing our resources and processes, and, and uh, really establishing a lot of the basic functions and the cadence and discipline um, to oper- operate like a public company. So we, we started down that path a long, a long time ago. Um, certainly, now that we are public, there, there are definitely more requirements uh, around you know, the quarterly public earnings process and filing 10Ks and Qs, uh, as well as, uh, you know, going through our SOX implementation process right now. Um, so I think there's, there is definitely a step up once you actually become public, um, but we have an eye to going public from a while back, and so we've tried to do as much work along the way as we could. So maybe that's a testament to his comment that um, some of that was already in place, so it didn't feel as different from his piece. There, you mentioned some of the team and what have you. Did you um, look to enlarge the team? I would imagine you had to. Uh, can you can you just share with us uh, if there were any types of roles that you had to add or beef up? What those might have been? Sure. Yeah, like I mentioned, there's um, there's been a bit of a gap when I when I got to the company, um, and we had a very small finance team in place, and Roku was a lot smaller, you know, three and a half years ago. Um, so really, what we we needed to to build out a, effectively a brand new SP&A function. Um, and there was a, a great controller who's, who's still here, Peter Nixer, um, and a small team on the accounting side, so we needed to get them more resources and work on our processes and, and, and systems over time. Um, but some of the, the more fundamental work we did was really on the forecasting, budgeting, and, and analysis front, where you know, we streamlined the forecasting process. We we were doing forecasting every month, and it was a very involved manual process. Um, and we actually removed one of the forecasts per quarter and, and streamlined it and allowed the SP&A team and the business to use that time to work on business-oriented analysis, um, which helped push an understanding of the business forward. Um, you know, I, I think that's a very important thing a lot of times a, a finance board, especially in a fast-growing company, can just get um, reactive and, and have trouble keeping up. And so you have to, you know, specifically engineer times where you're working on new stuff or deeper analysis to try to, um, you know, help the business better understand where the opportunities are and have a better sense of where to allocate resources as the company grows. We want to ask you about the marketplace, and uh, it's been characterized as a, a streaming boom that we're currently experiencing on TV and online. 
would love to understand better uh, how you characterize the opportunity that you see. What would you tell us about Roku's offering? Sure. Well, Anthony, our founder and CEO, I mean, it, he, he founded Roku on the premise that all TV will be streamed, and we also believe that if, you, if all TV will be streamed, then all TV advertising will be streamed. And, and he's the inventor of the DVR um, back in the day and has had several companies in this general space. So he's really um, a true visionary against that, um, that goal. Um, what's great is that even since I've been here, um, we used to spend time with folks trying to convince them that streaming was going to be a big thing. And now, now I think most people would say, you know, it's a real thing. Like you said, it, we're in a bit of a streaming boom. Um, and that, that is a great opportunity for Roku. We're the leading streaming TV platform um, in the country, and uh, we face significant competition from some big names, but we've managed to maintain or grow our leadership position on the player side. Um, we, we're now the number one licensed operating system of TVs, one in four TVs in the U.S., smart TVs in the U.S., are running the Roku operating system, and then we're the, have the leading OTT advertising platform. So, um, you know, I think for us, it's uh, the, one of the first things you can do is pick the right market, and Anthony was, was early and, and dogged in his pursuit of um, the fact that the world was going to move to streaming, and we built up some significant competitive moats around our platform, and that's treated as well, and we continue to innovate on top of that. So what are the uh, key metrics, then, that you're looking at before your first cup of coffee in the morning? What's, what, what are the important numbers for you as you uh, try to get a, a grasp of how the company's performing? Yeah, we have three key operating metrics, which really mirror the three components of our business model. So our business model is, you know, we want to build scale of the platform, and we want to give uh, get folks to engage on the platform itself, and then we monetize that engagement. So our, our three key operating metrics are active accounts. So those are we call proxy for households that have streamed on the platform in the last 30 days. And so that first and foremost is our, our uh, way of tracking how are we building our scale. And as of Q2, we were at 22 million active accounts, and that, that figure has been growing in the mid-40% year-over-year for a while. Um, so we've been able to maintain good account growth and, and grow scale. Then on the engagement side, we measure that by streaming hours. And so, you know, as it sounds, those are, those are, that's the amount of time people spend on the Roku platform engaging with content. And that's, uh, that has generally been growing faster than, than the active accounts. And then the third one where we monetize the, the platform is ARPU. So that's the average revenue per user. And so that was, as of Q2, $16.60 on a trailing 12-month basis. And that's largely comprised of advertising revenue and also uh, revenue shares that we get from um, signing up subscribers for subscription services or transactional video on demand um, transactions. Now, are you? Uh, how, how do you measure customer success today? Yeah, so we're uh, fairly unique in that we actually have three major customer segments. So I think a lot of people know Roku from the consumer side. Um, but we also have customer segments that are very important um, for, our, for our company and our business model around the content publishers as well as the advertisers. So on the consumer side, one of the, the key things we focus is we focus on our reviews. 
um, for the players or the TVs from our partners. And so um, we don't spend a lot of money on marketing, uh, but what we rely on is having the best reviews from consumers and also from the pundits in the industry um, to alert people to the fact that the, the Roku products are great quality, great value products. So consumer reviews are extremely important. Like a lot of companies, we also look at NPS scores for, for consumers, and so we do a lot of work with uh, you know NPS overall and for various attributes on our, our different products and services to make sure that we understand um, what, what are the satisfiers of the customers and what are some of the things that we have opportunities to grow on. On the content publisher side, we really look at that in terms of driving viewership to the various channels on the platform and helping them also sign up subscribers. And then in the advertisers, there's a lot of ways that we measure effectiveness there, but a lot of it is obviously driving viewership to ad-based um, channels on the platform. But we have a lot of um, Roku research as well as third-party uh, measurement, say, deals with Nielsen or Comscore or others so that we can help advertisers um, show the return on investment they, they make for advertising on Roku. We always, uh, one of our signature questions is to ask, uh, Steve, a, a finance strategic moment. And this could have, uh, I'm sure you've had plenty of them uh, during the course of your career. But we're hoping you'll, uh, something sticks out that you uh, might be able to share with us that reveals sort of the power of uh, the lines of sight of the CFO or the finance executive into the organization. When I ask you for a finance strategic moment, does anything come to mind? Yeah, there, there's certainly been, been a lot of them over time, but um, one, one that sticks out and it, it really resulted in uh, uh, me coming up with my own corny philosophy uh, was this notion of when, when I came in uh, to Roku, and I'd seen this in other places as well, is a lot of times the finance org can, can be focused on the transactional elements or, or the next close process, the next finance process or close out process. And, you know, for me, what I, what I developed over time is this philosophy of being bird-like. And what I mean by bird-like is B-I-R-D, business insight that's relevant and digestible. And that's a way to frame what is the highest and best use for a finance organization around providing insights to the business so you understand what the business is trying to accomplish. You don't just provide them data or reporting on the actuals or the forecast, but you're actually proactively looking at the data and trying to understand trends, be it you know, opportunities or risk areas, and you're providing that information and that insight to the business. You're doing it in a relevant way because you've built a relationship with the business and you've built um, some level of trust, and so you're able to tailor your message so that it will resonate with them. And digestible um, that is a big uh, question mark for a lot of support functions. I think for people who are logically oriented, you want to prove everything in the scientific method. But for busy business people, they want to really hear the punchline, and then if they want to engage on you on why you got there or, or provide, uh, get more support, they'll dig in. So providing business insight that's relevant and digestible is really uh, my philosophy, and I think the best way that finance and other functions can help the business drive forward. Um, just an example of that, as I, as I mentioned earlier, um, when I came in, Roku was um, doing a very uh, comprehensive, very manual forecast process every month. And so what it meant is that the SP&A teams and the business teams 
they're largely um, using their time just to do that, that profile process, um, take a quick break, and start over on the next one. So there was never much time to analyze that, and there certainly wasn't time to do new or deep dive analytical projects. And so what we did is we removed one of the forecasts, and we set that aside for them to work on that project. And so um, and the first one we picked uh, ended up being around our, our first key operating metric, which is active accounts, because we had um, core information on active accounts but had not had the chance to really get as much granular insight around active accounts as we wanted to. So the team ended up using that time where we had removed the forecast to start working on a deeper um, active account analysis in terms of how device sales turn into device activations and then which percentage of those are going to new accounts versus existing accounts and then what is the behavior in terms of the streaming hours that are generated out of those devices and those accounts. And that really led to a lot of insights that the business team um, used to help better understand how do we target different retailers or different channels or product types um, so that we can drive the key operating metrics and drive the business forward. So I think that's a good example of um, of how we combine both the, the finance processes with also that strategic necessity of trying to, to be bird-like and provide more business insights that's relevant and digestible. Now, in terms of uh, getting at the data and, and what's required maybe organizationally or uh, whether there was new technology that was required or more horsepower of one form or another to get at that data, what exactly was required? Or maybe you're going to tell me um, there were already things in place. Yeah, I think, I think the analytics side in, in, uh, is extremely important. Um, and certainly over time, we've greatly enhanced those. Um, Roku has a platform with now 22 million active accounts and billions of streaming hours a quarter um, has a treasure trove of data. And historically, we've been just scratching the surface of that information. Um, and so over time, we, we've definitely leveraged, leveraged that more and more. So we've, we've built out a, a true big data platform. We've created a, a formalized um, data science and analytics organization across Roku, and we've, we've greatly invested in both the technical and the people resources against that. I think that's absolutely critical in terms of driving that insight um, and then driving the value. Um, because the hardest thing for a company like Roku or any company that's growing at the speed it is, is what do you focus on and what, what is going to give you the differential return on where you put your resources? Because um, for a lot of folks, there's, diff oh, there's way more ideas than you have resources to go do. So the prioritization of things on the roadmap and um, resources and investments is, is really the most critical thing that someone like the CFO or the C CEO can focus on. And having the most data you can to inform that decision is absolutely critical and hugely valuable. Now, just, I'm curious, organizationally, that analytics team, those analytics people, are they organizationally, are they part of techno the technology team and not finance, or is it, uh, you know, integrated together, or is there a way of looking at it uh, organizationally? Is it different from where you worked at X Expedia? Is it different how how those analytics people or those people with that specialization are being 
uh, used within the organization? Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it different ways in different companies. Um, certainly, regardless of how the organization formally works, the communication between the data engineering capabilities, um, which in our case um, go up through the actual engineering org, um, the data science and analytics folks, um, and the business folks or other functional um, functional leadership that they support to answer the business problems. Having the communication across all three of those groups is absolutely critical. For us, um, I was actually one of the folks that helped nurture and was a big proponent of creating a, a road to wide data science and analytics organization. So um, we incubated it in, in my org, and now it exists in our platform business because those are the super users of that with our advertising business. So, um, you know, for us, it's evolved over time, but for me, the most important part part is having that commitment to, you know, leveraging the data that does exist to pull out the insight and then get that to the business folks um, so that they can make smart decisions with it. When we come back, Roku's Steve Loudon enters the mentoring round. But first, we have a Thought Leader Minute featuring a thought leader from the recent HR Tech Conference. Hello, we're speaking to Cornerstone's Jeff Miller. Jeff, how will AI influence the HR world? You know, I think that already AI has already started to have an influence, especially as you start to look at the power around algorithms and how all the predictive analytics are driving everything from how people are recruiting, how people are selecting people, to how people are trained, to how we're looking at who we should be promoting. So we're really enabling the system to start to tell us what to do, so it gives us an added data point with a little bit of additional depth. And I think that if people are attuned and aware and uh, open to accepting some of these opportunities and ways to look at data, then we're going to start making more informed, better decisions. Okay, the year is 2020. Is the annual performance review alive and well? You know, I don't know if I'm going to say alive and well or live on light support or what, but I, it'll obviously be in certain places. You know, given that we're in 2018, people are still going to be doing annual performance reviews, but I think the question that people need to be looking at a little bit more is the conversation used to be focused on how are we building a culture of learning? And I think now what people need to be looking at is how are we building a culture of feedback and are we really building continuous opportunities for feedback and are we creating environments at work where people are actually able to give and get and ask for feedback. So the annual performance review is alive. I think it's going to be heading towards the trash bin eventually because I think people still need a way to, to contextualize how the entire year was. Uh, so I don't think it's ever going to go away, but it's going to be pivoting. Jeff Miller, thank you for joining us. Thank you. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help.
We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. We're going to jump to our, our mentoring round where I get to ask you a, a set of questions intended to help uh, mentor and inspire uh, future finance leaders. What's exciting you about finance and business today? Yeah, I think uh, based on that approach uh, around providing business insights that's relevant and digestible, I think uh, especially in fast-growing organizations with a lot of data, that there, there is an opportunity for finance, given that a lot of the data, a lot of the performance metrics naturally go through the finance organization, to be strong partners with the business in terms of driving decision-making and helping the company move forward. So really, for me, the exciting thing about being in finance is if, you're, if you have the right problem-solving and you've got the right relationship with the business, you, you have a seat at the table for a lot of the critical decision-making for the company overall, which to me is, is one of the things that I think is most impactful. Is there something you wish someone had told you, and I, I'd love to take this just to the Raku uh, office of the CFL, when you first stepped in that uh, office for the first time, is there something you wish someone had, some piece of advice or information you wish you had? What would you tell yourself now? If you could go back, maybe, and whisper it in your own ear. <laughs> uh, well, I think I think what's interesting, and this maybe even goes back before I showed up at Roku, which was I, I learned over time and uh, that for technically-oriented people, the objective answer a lot of times is the actually the easier part of getting something done. And the subjective part in terms of getting all the various stakeholders on board with the decision and actually motivating them all to go on the same pace and, and actually accomplish something, that's the way harder part. So that's something that I think earlier in my career I focused on getting the right objective answer, and I completely underestimated the subjective side or the people side of making sure that I got the right people on board and that we all we all got over the finish line together. Um, and I think that's, whether it's at Roku or other places I've been, that, that's been a huge a huge learning, especially as you move up the chain. More and more of your, your time and effort is actually spent making sure that the organizations align and that you're moving in the right direction together as opposed to doing the, the actual objective analysis. Do you have a personal habit that you believe has contributed to your professional success? Well, I think um, I, was, it's interesting. I was just talking to my, my six-year-old about this, and I, I told her that two characteristics um, that are really important are curiosity and determination. Um, and so whether it's a habit or, or a characteristic, I guess I'm not sure. But the first thing is, in order, to, in order to really solve problems and do something different and new, you have to be curious about why, why are things the way they are and why aren't they better than they are. And so I think first and foremost, that, that's my, my characteristic or habit.
habit of saying, like, well, hmm, I wonder what's going on with that. And has anyone looked at it this way or that way? And so that, I think, is super important. Because without the spark of curiosity, a lot of the other great great things that can happen um, in terms of charting a new course never actually get a chance to occur. And then if you are curious, then I think the other important thing is that you, you remain determined. Because if you're curious, you're, you're generally going into new territory, at least for yourself, and there will inevitably be obstacles and setbacks and things that you initially can't figure out. So having the determination to figure out a way around it and to, to stay the course is absolutely critical to actually accomplishing things. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Yeah, I, I wish I had time to read books these days, um, but, but I haven't, uh, haven't lately between uh, all the great stuff that's ha- been happening at Roku and trying to spend some time with my, my family and my kids. Um, but what I, what I have defaulted to in the, in the meantime is um, listening to podcasts on my drive to and from work. And so one of the things that's not necessarily finance-related, but, but I think um, in my view of finance where, you know, we're all trying to solve complex, ambiguous business problems is uh, there's a podcast that I listen to called This is Success, and it's, it's a great podcast with a cross-section of folks that have been successful in whatever endeavor they have. And what's interesting to me is thinking about um, the situations that they were presented with and how they, how they thought about it, how they came up with new ideas, and then how they overcame the obstacles around that, I found very helpful because I, I think it's great to not only build your own experience, but also to learn from how others tackled um, certain situations that were, were new or difficult over time. Okay, we're up to our final question. Uh, but before we do, before we go there, I just want to ask again about uh, how you were able to distinguish yourself uh, from the other CFO candidates out there. And I know I asked this earlier, uh, and i just like you once more to shed a little more light on how you set yourself apart, because I think there were probably uh, some other usual Silicon Valley suspects, uh, but you got the role, and there's a reason for that. And, and again, I, I'm just hoping you drill down more on that for us. Yeah, well, I mean, um, in terms of that, I, I think – there were obviously lots of folks that they were talking to. One of the things that I think is really important, especially in a company that's growing as fast as Roku in a quickly evolving um, area, is to, to have somebody who can react to all the changes. And frankly, somebody that the CEO is comfortable with can be a good thought partner. And that, that whether it's any CEO and CFO, but certainly in a founder-led organization, um, having someone that the CEO and the board is comfortable with that shares out a vision and can be uh, someone that can keep up with, with them and can react to the fact that, you know, this industry is, is literally being charted as we go, uh, I think is one of the most critical factors in being successful at Roku, not just in my position, but in, in all the key positions. And so I think I think that's, that's really a characteristic that um, is critically important, maybe even, maybe even over other folks that have, have taken the company public before. Like I said, I actually had all the building blocks. I had seen IPOs 
and other capital markets transactions. I knew most of the bankers, so I had all the pieces um, together, maybe just not the actual um, Steve Rodner taking company X public before. Um, but for me, you know, most of what the CFO does should be helping drive the business forward. And certainly, you know, we've been fortunate enough to have a very successful IPO process and, and a great first year as a, as a public company. And, and something you just said made me realize uh, I, I'm looking at this company as if it's a, a Silicon Valley uh, company. It really isn't. It's an entirely different industry. It has that Silicon Valley luster on it, maybe. That's what led me to uh, think that way. Yeah, well, that's a good point, but I think you, you hit on um, – you hit on from one direction uh, a point that, that comes out with Roku um, a lot for certainly uh, analysts and investors and other other industry participants, be it in the tech side and the media side. Um, we certainly are, we're headquartered in um, in Silicon Valley. That's where where the business grew up. But uh, you know we are we are at the intersection of technology and media and advertising. Um, and so, in a way, um, you know, we're as much Silicon Valley as we are LA and content, as much as we are New York and advertising. Um, and we have we have footprints on the ground in each of those worlds. And so, it, it means that Roku um, has a lot of different businesses under its umbrella. Right? We have an advertising business. We have a content distribution business. We have a, a play, streaming player hardware business. We have. TV licensing deals with TV manufacturers. So it's a complex set of businesses, and as a result, there's not a great comp for Roku, right? We're not one of 10 companies in a specific industry. We all have the same metrics and, and are very easily comparable. And as a result, that's, that's been a, something that we, we spent time over the years trying to educate the folks on our business model, how we're different, how that's valuable, and how we how we are the leader and can maintain our leadership in streaming. Okay, our final question: What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next twelve months? Well, I think the the, the number one thing we can do um, is is to help the business grow um, with the backdrop of the fact that as the CFO, I have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that as a public company, we're meeting our obligations around reporting, stocks implementation, all that. Um, but having said that, um, you know, we make sure that, that we're running, you know, the right processes and the right controls. Um, the biggest thing we can do is keep helping the business grow. There's a, we feel like we're in the early innings of the streaming transition. And so for us, it's, you know, so it's helping the business grow on the advertising side, the Roku channel side, which is our free ad sort of content channel our TV operator deals, um, or our international expansion. There's a lot of work to, to do to help the business make great decisions about how to, how to grow and how to allocate resources. Steve Loudon, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Thought Leader listeners, whether you've already ascended into the ranks of finance leaders or have only just begun the journey, your professional narrative 
needs a reboot. Join our email list at cfothoughtleader.com and receive my latest email series, Finance and the Power of Narrative. It's time to mobilize the past to achieve your goals. Thank you for listening.